Welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast series presented by BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor of Business in Vancouver. This series is sponsored by the Women's Enterprise Center. The nonprofit organization is devoted to helping BC women start, lead, and grow their own businesses. For over 25 years, they provided business loans of up to $150,000, plus integrated services, including advice, training, mentorship, resources, and a supportive community to help female business owners gain the skills, the mindset, financing, and networks that they need to realize their business potential and goals. Throughout this week, I'll be exploring the topics of leadership, adversity, growth, and inclusion with four truly remarkable female leaders. You can watch the series at BIV.com video and listen to the conversations at BIV.com audio. And all updates on the series as we post new episodes throughout the week will be made available at BIV.com slash article slash W-I-L for women in leadership. Here's today's episode. My guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Canada's original.ca registrar and one of the country's leading internet solutions companies. Sabelle Negra sits on the boards of the Royal Canadian Mint, Science World, BCAA, and the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. She's also the vice chair of the Small Business Roundtable of BC. And additionally, throughout her career, Sabelle has been a champion of women in business and women in STEM. Just to name a few examples, she is a regional ambassador for Women Get On Board. She also played a key role in getting the province to establish a proclamation for women and girls in STEAM week. She also happens to be one of BIV's past influential Women in Business Award winners. Sabelle, so thrilled to have you on our show. Thanks for joining our Women in Leadership podcast. Thank you so much, Haley, for having me here today. I want to dive right into the leadership piece. It has been such a tumultuous year for everyone, and it's been such a challenge for people who have had to lead through the pandemic. What are some of the lessons you've taken away from the past year? Oh, gosh. I mean, leadership, it's its such a complicated issue these days. Um, I would say that in the past, uh, great leaders, you would look at somebody and say, if this person has a grand vision, has the ability to inspire and mobilize a team behind them um, and then if they have grit and tenacity to persevere and they're the ones that uh, you know won't quit when everybody else wants to quit that's the sign of a great leader but today it's just so much more complicated than that and you know great leaders need to be um, kind of like um, purpose-driven they have to balance strength and empathy uh, you have to be decisive yet you have to consensus build and uh, lead the team along with those decisions. You can't be that authoritarian. Um, I think the other part of it is that rather than just leading your team and your company, there's this, um, you know, the CEOs are expected to have this public voice. And essentially you have to demonstrate either support or disdain for specific causes. And it's a really tricky time so I think for me, it's really been um, you know, focusing on our business, um, doing what we do, which is great, uh, leading that values-based um, type of business, which we have our core values that we try to live up to, um, empowering the team, um, amaze every customer with exceptional service, doing good for the community. And by leading that values-based organization, I think that's been part of our success and um, you know we'll align ourselves to specific causes like you've uh, mentioned um, i'm on the board of science world 
and really being being that champion for um, the annual Girls in STEAM event, for instance, or aligning with the um, Canadian Cancer Society to help build the Cancer Prevention Center. So focusing in on specific causes rather than try to jump in on every single conversation out there. It would just be too much. I don't know how anyone it would, would do that. That's much. a full-time job. But it's an interesting point you raised because it almost feels like we've entered this era where companies can't be neutral. They can't just do what they've set out to do. People expect them to weigh in on issues and to showcase what they support or to take a side on social media. It's kind of a different era for, for leaders. Exactly. And it, it is tough. And um, so you have to kind of pick and choose because you can't be a voice in every single cause. And if you do, you'll spend your entire time um, dealing with those types of issues and just not running the business. So I think um, ensuring that whatever that you're saying publicly is aligning with um, the values within the organization is really important. It's that balance, that balance we're always <laughs> chasing after. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you've led a career where you've largely been in male-dominated industries and for the past two decades in tech specifically. I want to ask you a bit about what that's been like and maybe how your experiences have changed over the decades. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it has changed. I, I've typically been in male-dominated industries. I started out in pharmaceuticals and then ended up um, in, a, in the construction industry, which is even more male-dominated than um, technology. But for the last 20 years, I've been in tech. And I would say that in the early days, especially um, that, that was in 2000 when we uh, started Web Names, there were very, very few women in the technology industry. And um, in my industry in, in particular, the domain and web hosting industry, it's been known to be pretty mis misogynistic. So I'll give you some examples of um, the early days where um, we would go to an industry event and um, the, the women behind the trade show booths were called booth babes. Um, we had an industry event where the after party was at the Playboy Mansion. So um, I'm very glad I didn't go because everybody ended up getting norovirus uh, from that infamous grotto. So I'm really glad I didn't go to that one. Um, there was another event that I remember going to in Montreal. And then after the, um, the formal part of it, we all went for a walk and then it was all guys. So everybody wanted to go into this bar, which happened to be a strip bar. And so I had a choice to make. I was the only female there. And this was back in the day when there was no Uber, there was no smartphone. So I couldn't just easily grab an Uber or a cab. So I went inside with everyone. And then some of the guys, um, you know, thought that was kind of a cool thing, but wanted to buy me a lap dance, which of course I declined. And um, I think there, there's, you have to deal with those types of situations with grace, right? You, you don't want to react, um, you know, too, too much. But on the other hand, you have to stand up for what you believe in. So, you know, I sat kind of aside, um, I wasn't watching, and then started into conversations with people who actually wanted to have a conversation and ended up doing one of my biggest deals ever, um, millions of dollars that lasted over a decade. So um, those were the types of situations I had to deal with quite a bit. Um, and then going to industry events um, or, or even networking organizations where I would be the first, like the only woman in a room or one of a handful. And 
you know, people would say, oh, you know, are you so-and-so's wife or are you so-and-so's um, executive assistant? So, you know, I was not there as a CEO or as an executive of a company, but um, as somebody's spouse or executive assistant. So um, I think things have changed and thankfully things have changed. Um, we don't see a lot of that going on anymore. Things have cleaned up in the industry, but I think we still have some ways to go. Yeah, and I think perhaps uh, less extreme examples, but we still hear about, say, there being a fraternity culture, say, within a tech organization, or maybe someone doesn't like beer, but that's the culture of the organization. So they feel like if they want to network and they want a promotion within a company, they have to play ball. Do you have advice on how someone might handle that, wanting to fit in and contribute to a team, but also maybe not being comfortable or feeling excluded at the same time? Yeah, I think that, that's that's definitely um, an issue. And I know that we were guilty of that um, in the early days where we had, you know, foosball tables and we would, um, you know, do things and events that were fairly male-oriented, um, competitions with video games and things like that. And um, I think over the years, we became very conscious that if we wanted more females in the organization and better diversity, we had to do things that um, would bring the team together and um, be more inclusive of what we were doing. So, um, you know, you, organizations need to be very conscious of um, doing things that are appealing to a wider audience and not just to a very specific group. So um, I, I say the advice for the organizations is that they need to be conscious and to really look at um, diversity and inclusion. But on the other side, people who are within the organization need to start calling it out. So if there are things and you notice, you know, not everybody wants to go out drinking on a Friday um, or have beer Fridays in the office, maybe there's something else that you can be doing um, alongside that, or you mix it up, you do that every other Friday, and you have something that's more inclusive. Um, so I think not only women um, need to call that out, men need to call that out as well. And um, also do things that are more culturally inclusive as well, because if you want diversity, it's not just about gender either. You've written for BIV before about the issue of imposter syndrome, which I know many women and other individuals deal with in the business world. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that showed up for you and maybe some of the steps you've taken personally and professionally to try and combat that feeling of being an imposter? Yeah, so imposter syndrome is something that I've pretty much battled with all my life, but I didn't know it existed. So um, I, I guess maybe first just to define what imposter syndrome is, um, it's different than just self-doubt and just lack of confidence, even though those are contributors to it. Um, it's really, they call it imposter syndrome because it's, it's really one of those things that can be um, quite serious because it can paralyze you in terms of your career and what you, you want to do and achieve. And it's that internalized and very persistent fear that you're going to be found out as a fraud. So um, imagine feeling that you not only don't belong at the table, but even once you're there, you don't deserve the recognition of being there. You don't um, think that, you know, one day, one day somebody's going to find out that, you know, this person actually doesn't belong and we should kick them off. Um, and, and feeling that you fooled everyone, right? That like true, that's why they call it imposter because you're fooling everyone. And at some point, somebody's going to find out that you're that fraud. Um, 
And I think the first time I recognized I had it was um, I was um, given an award. So I was told that I was um, one of the top 100 most powerful women in Canada. And when I heard that um, and invited to Toronto to accept the award, I actually thought that at some point in time, um, somebody was going to give me a call back and say, oh, I'm really sorry, but we made a mistake and we um, put your nomination in, in the wrong pile. And I was kind of waiting for that call, which never came. I went to Toronto and went to accept the award and I was seated beside um, Christine McGee of Sleep Country Canada and Jacqueline Shan, who invented cold FX. And then Margaret Atwood, <laughs> the famous author, author um, walks out on stage and she's the keynote speaker for the evening. And she was one of the fellow winners. So I literally sat there and I thought, wow, you know, I do not belong here. And I felt so small, even though I should be feeling great about being in the company of great people, I felt like I didn't belong. And the funny thing about that was um, I went on to win that award four times. And then they injected me into the Hall of Fame. And you would think by then, I would have felt that I belonged. And even then, I still you know, thought, yeah, at some point, somebody's going to find out I'm not as good as they think I am. And that, that feeling was pretty persistent for years. And I started to talk to other women about it and other winners as well. And some of them felt exactly the same way. So I thought there's something here that's more than just self-doubt. Um, and then I started reading more about it and I ended up writing an article for BIV and thank you for publishing that um, because what I learned from that was so many women and PhDs and other CEOs reached out to me and said, wow, this really resonates. I feel the same way and thank you for bringing attention to this. Um, so I started reading more about it, and um, there's a woman by the name of Dr. Valerie Young who wrote a book, and um, the book is called, um, it's about imposter syndrome, and it's called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, and essentially talks about imposter syndrome and how um, she even has a checklist on her website. Um, you know, do you chalk up your success to luck or timing um, if you think you know, if I can do this, anybody can. And, you know, really critical of your own work and being that perfectionist and being crushed by criticism, even though it was constructive. So, um, you know, after all of this reading and learning, um, I was actually able to um, do a keynote introducing um, Dr. Valerie Young at an event over and over the years we've become friends and and meet for dinner when um, before COVID anyways, before she when she was in Vancouver and started to learn more about this. So I did write in a follow-up article on BIV about how to overcome some of these feelings. And part of it is recognition and recognition that this problem exists out there, that it affects more women than men. Um, so that's one, one thing that we need to be very conscious of. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, there is a confidence gap between women and men, and that's been talked about quite a bit, and that feeds into this. Perfectionism is definitely a confidence killer, so you need to deal with these issues of, of perfectionism and, you know, making sure that you know that it doesn't need to be, uh, to be absolutely perfect, um, and you shouldn't beat yourself up when um, things aren't absolutely perfect. And acknowledging that, um, you know, for me, part of my success is that I don't know it all. I don't need to know it all. 
And I think honestly, like my success is because I come to realize that and I hire really smart people. And those smart people are amazing at what they do in their respective areas. And, um, you know, I depend on them and empower them to be the best that they can be. And I think if you go back to Simon Sinek, who, you know, I think he said something around, um, you know, CEOs should be the dumbest person in the room, right? And I think what he means by that is, you know, when, when a CEO, for example, like has a really strong sense of like marketing, for instance, um, that becomes the weakest part of a company. And that's been proven in studies because, you know, we tend to then overanalyze and, and micromanage those areas. But if we let our people um, be empowered to do the best work that they can do, that leads to better success for the entire organization. And then I think finally, like um, around imposter syndrome, one thing that I, I, I do say um, to many of the women out there, but anybody who has this issue is that, you know, as we grow in our careers, we will always be presented with situations where um, it's new or there are smarter people around and it's okay. Think of it as, as a learning opportunity. And if you're doing something new and you're that trailblazer, of course, you're going to feel that feeling of imposter syndrome or that you don't belong because there's nothing to belong to. You're leading that trail for everybody else to follow. Um, so, you know, and that's not to say you shouldn't be learning all the time and that's not pushing arrogance. Um, you know, you should still learn. And, and if you're not feeling competent about something, you should continue to learn those skills and, and develop those skills. Um, and then finally, I would just say, feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, something that I've, I've learned over the years is to just understand that there are going to be situations where I'm either fearful of or it, I'm out of my comfort zone. And I've, I've really pushed myself to feel that fear, but continue to push on. And by getting through that, then you get to the next step. And that's where personal uh, growth comes from. I like that line, feel the fear and do it anyway. And thank you so much for taking a moment to talk about this because I think it is really important that we do talk about and destigmatize imposter syndrome. One place where women might feel like imposters would be on corporate boards, especially if they are the lone woman sitting around a table of men. You sit on many corporate boards. I also mentioned you're involved with uh, Get Women on Board. Can you speak a bit about your experience, maybe breaking through and, and your first time sitting on a board and how that's changed over the years? Yes, definitely. Well, I think sitting on boards, it's it's definitely, um, it's a journey. And, um, you know, I started sitting on boards um, over a decade and a half ago. And I started small, start, um, started with sitting on smaller not-for-profit boards, and um, then eventually grew into um, sitting on education um, boards for universities and and um, membership organizations that were larger, and then eventually onto corporate boards. And that's typically the trajectory that uh, most people take when they're kind of going from the smaller not-for-profits and charities um, into um, a, a, a larger corporate um, board or a public um, company board. And um, 
think once you get into the larger boards, and I think, I, I, I mean, I get a lot of people asking me, how do I get in, onto a large corporate board and a paid board? And I think part of it is patience. Um, there's a lot of learning that goes into it. And in order to sit on a large corporate board, um, you know, the organizations are looking for like 10 to 15 years of um, executive experience because you're essentially, um, you know, leading uh, the strategy and um, hiring and firing the CEO. So you have to have that level of experience and understanding of how the executive team would work in a large organization. Um, the other important components would be like governance experience, um, you know, key expertise around strategy, um, strategic planning, enterprise risk management, audit, um, you know, these are all the things that boards do, HR and compensation, um, CEO recruitment, um, evaluation as well, M&A. And then now um, it's gotten even more complicated than that. Those are all kind of the things that boards do. But nowadays, um, boards have oversight around cybersecurity, for instance. Um, the other big topic, um, very hot topic, is digital transformation. And that's been accelerated because of COVID-19. So there's all of that. And then the biggest topic now that I hear every board is talking about it is ESG, which is environmental social governance. So that encompasses environment, climate change, um, pollution, and all of those factors, as well as um, DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So there are all of these things that are, um, you know, parts of what boards do in, in terms of an oversight role. So there's a lot of experience that needs to go into this. And, um, you know, happy to talk about, you know, education and, and the types of education and resources that are out there, if you like. So I, the, the takeaway, I think, is that someone's not going to get appointed to, you know, the board of a public company overnight. You do need to start small and gain that experience and maybe take advantage of some of the educational resources that are out there. Absolutely. And in, in Vancouver, we have great resources. And now with um, COVID, a lot of these resources from um, other provinces are also available um, here in, in BC as well. So maybe I'll just call some of them out. Like locally, we have Watson, um, Liz Watson's company has um, great resources and programs and, and educational uh, resources that um, and, and programs that you can take. Um, I would definitely look at ICD, um, Institute for Corporate Directors, and they have programming that are short courses around specific topics like cybersecurity, um, technology, climate change, um, culture, and, um, you know, audit. So um, then they have a very big program that's over $20,000 that is the director education program where you can get a designation. Um, it's the ICD.D designation. Um, so that's one of those things that many people now are moving towards to, um, to get that designation to serve on these larger boards. But for the people who are starting out today, there are other programs like um, ICD has the not-for-profit program, which is only a two-day program that's much more affordable. And then, you know, as you mentioned in my intro, Women Get On Board, um, which is an organization near and dear to my heart. Um, it was started by Deborah Rosati out in um, Toronto. And, um, you know, she spent 
over a decade trying to help get more women um, on boards of directors across the country. And um, she has chapters across the, across the country, um, lots of education, lots of programming and uh, resources to help women try to get on boards and how to write even a board resume, for instance. Great. For one of the things that I think goes hand in hand with education is mentorship. And I'd love to know the role that mentorship has played in your career. Yes. Um, I mean, there's mentorship and then there's role models. And, and I've had um, both. Um, I would say that, you know, some, some of the role models um, for me would be number one, my father. Um, he passed away 10 years ago, but he's one of my great role models where you know, we came to Canada as immigrants and I watched him go from this very high powered executive role um, as the um, president of Alcoa Asia, the big aluminum company, to coming to Vancouver, hire, um, trying to get hired and um, applied for jobs at uh, 7-Eleven as a manager and didn't get it. So he became an entrepreneur and became very um, successful in a number of different ventures. And what he taught me was um, work ethic, like really have to work hard and, and be that deep thinker. And then um, John Demko, my, my business partner, would be another great role model for me um, in that he started the .ca domain name um, in 1987. And uh, that was pre-commercialization of the internet. He um, you know, ran the .ca registry for 13 years for free, never charging a single dollar for it. And by the time I met him in 1999, um, he had 100,000 .CAs under management, and he had never charged a dollar for it. And such was the internet, right? Back then, um, it was not intended on selling goods or services. It was sharing knowledge and expertise and connecting universities. And um, he's really looked upon as a pioneer of the Canadian internet. So he's another great role model for me. Um, but in terms of a mentor, like somebody who um, specifically helps you, um, you know, look, look at your career and um, helps you to set goals and helps you to progress through that and challenges you on what your next steps are and keeps you accountable. Um, Don, Don Matrick was um, that person for me in, in my earlier career. And um, he was the former CEO of Electronic Arts. Um, he was um, CEO of Zynga, and he was president of interactive entertainment at um, Microsoft in charge of Xbox. So um, he, he would be that person for me, and he really helped to um, keep me accountable. Um, and then nowadays, I, I actually uh, belong to a peer mentorship group, um, and it's a CEO forum, and we keep each other accountable, and we meet monthly to discuss our challenges, our goals, we share ideas, and um, you know they're they're just absolutely phenomenal in terms of all of these tech CEOs, both male and female, and um, I really value their their help in um, in keeping me sane. Sometimes <laughs> we all need that. I think. <laughs> um, in our final minute or two left, Sibel, I'm hoping you can maybe share some advice or insight to younger women who are earlier in their careers and maybe wanting to come up in a male dominated industry, such as technology or in another STEM field. What would you share with them? Oh, wow. Well, I think one thing that I've said for years to young women is don't think of being the only female as 
um, as a disadvantage. Turn it around and, and rethink that and, and look at it as an advantage because it's a way for you to stand out above the crowd. And, um, you know, I give, I give the um, example of myself getting great media attention and accolades as a female in tech. And probably if I was another male running um, the, the business, might have not um, received the same type of media attention as I've received. So you can find ways of um, utilizing that um, to the benefit of yourself and your team. Um, that That's definitely the way to go rather than kind of thinking of that as a, as a disadvantage for yourself. Or trying to kind of mute your differences and kind of lean into the background, right? It's okay to stand out. Exactly. Own it. Totally. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join our podcast. Really nice speaking with you. Thank you so much, Haley. Thanks for having me. That's Sibel Negra. She's the co-founder and CEO of webnames.ca. <laughs>